Good morning, everybody. You guys are awake this morning. I like it. I like it. It's good to see you guys. I'm Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church. And yeah, it's my honor and privilege to be here with you. So good to see you all. Um, We are in the middle of a short series um, called Jesus Talks. And we're just trying to get to know Jesus a little bit better through some of these conversations that he had with different people over the course of his ministry. And so last week, we looked at Jesus with Nicodemus to kind of start us off. And Nicodemus is kind of this like aristocratic religious leader who um, is in a position of power. He is kind of like the, the social religious elite. And yet he comes to Jesus trying to kind of figure out who Jesus is. And Jesus tells him, well, you don't know who I am unless you're reborn. And so you need to be born again. And so we talked about what that means and how, um, what it looks like to trust Jesus and to rest in Jesus and him alone and why that was hard for Nicodemus to do because he was trusting in something else that he had to kind of let go of. And um, in the gospel account, there's no real resolution right then and there to Nicodemus. It's just kind of like, okay, now we move on. Um, and we move on to the woman of Samaria, also known as the woman at the well, who's kind of like the exact opposite of Nicodemus. And these two people are put right next to each other very intentionally by John and then also just in the ministry of Jesus because he's, he's communicating to us there's nobody who can't come to Jesus. You have religious, political elite, and then you have the person who epitomizes an outcast, someone cast away from society and by society and totally forgotten. And so turn with me to this story. It's a beautiful story, probably one of your favorites. Um, And we'll just kind of read it together and then walk through how Jesus actually is the only thing that quenches our thirst, and we need to quench our thirst with Jesus only. So this is in John, Gospel of John, chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For that salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left the water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, um, for this interaction and for you showing us who you are through your Son. God, we thank you that we get to see your heart so clearly, so evidently in this passage, that we learn in a very precise and important way the kind of God that you are. And so, Lord, here this morning, I ask that you would just give us clarity, that you would be here with us, that this would be a time where we meet you and we receive from you. And regardless of where we are in our faith or in our life, that we would just stop and join you and receive from you and be reminded once again of our need for you and what we've been made for. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you guys like being thirsty? Anybody like being thirsty? Sometimes it's kind of fun. You feel the thirst, and then, like, you know there's a nice cold glass of water waiting for you. Like, in a society where water is very abundant and easily accessible, being thirsty is not too bad. It might be uncomfortable for a little bit, but it's not something that really captivates our lives. We don't organize our lives necessarily around the fact that we will get thirsty and need a drink. And so that is one of the ways where we are kind of foreigners to this text. Because the audience of this text would have been a people in, in a pre-modern world in a desert where thirst was a matter of life and death. 
it was exactly what you organized your entire life around. There is a, um, a time when I was on a long backpacking trip, and there's a stretch of the trip that was like, I think it was about 30 miles or so, and there was only one source of, of water in 30 miles. And so you had to kind of like plan to get to that source of water and make sure that you had enough to get there and that you got enough to get to the next source of water. And I remember this, and I will never forget it probably. Um, we get to the source of water, and it's like cow pasture land. And so this water had been trampled by livestock. It was like a little stream that was barely moving. And I, I was with a friend, and we kind of looked, and we're like, is this it? And we kind of walked a little bit, and we're like, no, this, this is it. And so we had like a little water filter that was supposed... I, mean, I don't know how those things work, but it was supposed to take out all the bad stuff, but we weren't sure, but we had no more water. And so we had no choice except for to put our little filter in that water and pump it up into our water bottles. The water was green, didn't take out the color, and it didn't take out the taste. It tasted like it had been trampled by livestock. And I think that was the, the time where, now that I read this, I can somewhat understand the importance of water and just how desperate we are for it and how dependent on it we are. And so this is the controlling metaphor of this passage, right? And so as we, as we dive into it, it's important for us to kind of enter into that way of thinking and viewing the world, because then we're going to understand what Jesus is actually doing with this conversation with the woman. And so there's going to be kind of three different things that we're going to look at um, that just kind of flow out of the text. First is that Jesus knows thirst. So that's like the first most important thing to see in this text is Jesus knows thirst. We're going to talk about that. And then we're going we're gonna to look at Jesus as the source that quenches thirst. Jesus is the, is the source that quenches thirst. And then finally, we're going to see that we are all made to thirst for God. We're all made to thirst for God. So let's first look at how Jesus knows thirst. And there's three different ways that Jesus kind of knows thirst in this passage. The first one is just experientially. So we have to stop and kind of like reckon with the fact that Jesus was thirsty and he was tired. And that's like, okay, that's not that significant. But if you remember, remember all the way back to John 1, Jesus is the word who is God. And so in verse 4, you get one of the or verse 5, excuse me, 6, verse 6, sorry. Verse 6, you get one of the most profound statements in this entire gospel. Because the Lord, God, the creator of everything, is wearied from a journey, and he's sitting beside a well. So God knows thirst because Jesus put on our flesh and he subjected him to our neediness. 
He's sitting beside this well, and the well's there, so he knows there's water there, and he's been on a journey for a while, but he's got nothing to get the water with. So this is why he's just kind of sitting there. He's tired. He's like, please, somebody come. And the problem with it is, is the text tells us that it's about the sixth hour. That's noon. So that is not the time people go to get water from a well. Like there's very little chance that somebody will actually be there because people go in the morning to get their water. And so he's sitting there kind of at the mercy of chance. And he's like, well, I'm here because I can't do anything else. And so this is, um, this is speaking about Jesus's human nature, how he became human and truly human. He couldn't just manufacture water. He was waiting there. And so this tells us that when Jesus took on flesh, when God planned to send his son, his eternal son, in the flesh, this kind of interaction is exactly what he had in mind. He had in mind to send Jesus to meet us and intercept us in the midst of our need. The whole interaction that he has with this woman is exactly what he had in mind by coming to the earth. So he knows, he knows thirst experientially. He is thirsty. He also meets us in our thirsty condition and knows thirst relationally. So this woman, we already kind of mentioned, she's the exact opposite of Nicodemus. So there's a few different things about her that we know. She's a Samaritan. Samaritans and Jews were like blood enemies. So the, the Jewish people looked down on the Samaritans because they had broken off early on in Israel's history, and they had kind of settled in this land because they wanted to intermarry. And so they were ceremonially, ritually unclean. They were kind of deserving of the curses of the covenant. They were mixed. Their worship was mixed. They were idolaters. They were the most obvious and worst kinds of sinners from an Israelite's perspective. And so you have Nicodemus, who's kind of the shining example of what it means to be a, a Jewish person, and then you have Samaritans. But she wasn't just a Samaritan. She was also a Samaritan woman. So in a paternalistic society, women did not have an equal standing with men. So she was kind of like on the power structure. She was a Samaritan, which is also already against her. She's also a woman, alone, vulnerable. She's complete, she's meager. In terms of social standing, she has none. And then the last thing that we already kind of alluded to is that she's an outcast. Why is she at the well at the sixth hour? That's not the time to go and get water. She's at the well at the sixth hour because she doesn't want to see anybody. She doesn't want to bump into somebody and be reminded of her shame. She doesn't want to be confronted with the fact that People whisper about her when she leaves. People look down on her. So she's a complete outcast. And Jesus meets her. 
and he knows that kind of thirst. And then finally, Jesus knows our thirst supernaturally. So now we're going to jump into this conversation where Jesus kind of asks her for a drink, and she kind of comes back at him with a little bit of snark. She's like, you can't ask for a drink from me. I'm a Samaritan, and you're a Jew. And so it's kind of like, almost like she feels this reversed power dynamic and uses it against him because she knows, like, no, the Jewish people see us as ritually and ceremonially unclean. And so it's actually against your customs for me to draw water for you because that would make you unclean. So she kind of gives him a little, a, a little bit of, um, of resistance right away. And Jesus just kind of rolls with it. And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so there's kind of like a, almost like a sparring match going on conversationally because she's kind of like, yeah, you don't even have anything to, to get the water with. So how can you give me living water? But then Jesus kind of like intrigues her and he says, this kind of living water is the kind that permanently quenches thirst. The water that I have, you drink it and you don't need anything else. You've got everything that you need. You don't have to come back to the well. So for her, that would have really been appealing. You mean that I can take this water? And she's still thinking like very literally. I can get this water and never have to get water again. I'll never have to be reminded of my shame. I'll never have to come out and risk someone seeing me kind of slinking out of my house just to live just to get something that will sustain me. Tell me more about this. She's intrigued. This water brings eternal life. And so the transition now happens where Jesus goes to the real thirst. So he is kind of, okay, using the metaphor of thirst, and now he drops it down to the meaning of the metaphor. And all he does is he says, go call your husband and come here. And so this would have been kind of socially the, the correct thing for Jesus to do because talking to a woman at a well with no one else around in the middle of the day, it's kind of like having a conversation with someone of the opposite sex in a bar. It's kind of like where you meet people. And the Old Testament is full of stories where there's kind of like these romantic encounters at wells. And so it's kind of loaded. And so Jesus is like, okay, call your husband. But he does that because he knows this woman. He knows her and we don't really know how he knows, but he doesn't have to be like an X-man or a Superman to know this. It's probably fairly apparent that she is a pretty sketchy person, what we would think of as a sketchy person. She's hanging out in the place where the normal people wouldn't go. She's on the wrong side of town, kind of. And so he's moving the conversation to the next level. 
Um, some people, I can't remember who, who calls it this, but conversationally, this is known as the like pain point um, when you're having deep conversations with people. We've all been there. It's like that time in a conversation where it stops being superficial, and you're like, oh, this, is, this conversation is going to hurt now. And he enters into that. And she is trying to deflect, and he just handles this beautifully. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus just says, you are right in saying I have no husband. So he doesn't chastise her. This is very gentle of Jesus. But he goes right to the heart of her thirst by saying, you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. So Jesus is opening up her sinfulness and just putting it out on the table, acknowledging it. He's not pretending like it's not there. He's not trying to kind of say, oh, it's okay, I understand why you did all that, and it's not a big deal. He says, no, you've had five husbands, and you are now with someone who's not your husband. But he doesn't care as much about the details as he does the meaning and the why. So this is where we see the supernatural understanding that Jesus has of our thirst. Because he knows the why behind the sin. He knows it. She probably doesn't even know it. But he knows it. And he wants to take her attention to that point. He wants to say, listen, I'm going to give you here at this well what you're searching for in your bedroom. The water that you come here for, you're actually going to get the metaphorical water in these relationships. And the problem is, those very things are the things that are destroying you. They're the things that are leading you to be an outcast and cement yourself as an outcast. And so this story is about sex, but it's not about sex. It's about sex because clearly that's what Jesus is referring to when he, he says, you've had five husbands and you're, you have one that's not your husband right now. But it's also representative. So it's this poignant example of what it means to be thirsty as a human. It's a longing that we all can connect with and understand. It's a longing for intimacy. It's a longing to be known by someone fully and received by someone fully. It's a longing for security and for safety in that intimacy. And so Jesus is entering into the very meaning of her thirst. And he's taking her to where she's going to quench the thirst. And just kind of leaving, and just, he's not drawing any conclusions for her. But he's just saying, you have this thirst. And it's not getting better. You're still thirsty. You keep going back to that well four, five, six times and you're still thirsty. You still have that longing, 
and it's starting to get deeper. So let's think for a minute for us. Where do we go to quench our thirst? Where do we go when we need that feeling of being received, known, enjoyed by someone, security, safety? A lot of times it's relationships. It doesn't have to be. It might be money. It might be um, an experience. It might be your family. It could be a lot of things, good things. And yet we're trying to use those things for something that they're not able to hold. They're not able to do. It's like the classic example of, you know, the shipwrecked person who's on like a little lifeboat and um, there's a little nursery rhyme, water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. It's like we're thirsty and we think that the salt water is actually going to quench our thirst. But it just accentuates our dehydration, makes us thirstier in the long run. And so there's a transition here again where Jesus now shows himself, himself as the source that quenches thirst. So in verse 19, the woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So some people think that she's kind of changing the subject here because she's uncomfortable. But actually, she is now acknowledging that this is not an ordinary Jewish guy. He just cut me to the core. He knows the things about me that a stranger should not know. How is it that he would know all of that, the most personal details of my life? And he's a stranger. So now she's actually saying like, okay, let's not talk about that. I want to talk about this more fundamental thing. And so she opens up this idea of worship. And even though it's not directly connected in the text, we understand that thirst and worship go together because we worship what quenches our thirst 100% of the time. You will organize your life around the thing that quenches your thirst. You will do whatever it takes to continue to have your thirst quenched. It creates kind of like this cyclical longing for predictability and relief. Imagine yourself in that desert and there is a source of water. You're going to organize your life around that source of water. And if it's predictable and reliable and it brings you the relief, you will do what it takes to maintain that. And so this transition from thirst to worship is actually really natural. And so she goes to kind of this core misunderstanding between the Samaritans and the Jews, and that is, where do we worship? And so for the Jews, they had received instructions to go into the land, into Jerusalem, establish the temple, have the temple system. The Samaritans rejected all of that, and they just held to the Torah, the first five books, and they took this well and the mountain that is nearby the well as kind of being God's sign of favor. Like God is clearly providing and blessing us because he's given us this well, and it was Jacob's well. And so Jesus has to do a little bit of um, 
cultural apologetics, right? He has to explain in her culture, in a way that makes sense to her, what he's trying to convey. But he doesn't let go of truth. And so he says, you are worshiping something that you don't know, and we worship what we do know. And so what he's saying there is your knowledge is partial. You have took it upon yourself to reject the word of God. And yeah, you hold on to part of it, but you're rejecting other parts. You're rejecting the part that might kind of like create a little conflict with your way of life, with the way that you define yourself as a people. Because the rest of the word of God would have spoken against intermarrying, would have spoken against kind of blending the worship with pagan people and would have called you to repentance. And that's not what the Samaritans wanted to hear, so they rejected it. And they're like, listen, God has shown his favor. We're good here. We're going to stop here. We'll go this far with God, and now we're going to stop here, and we're going to wait for more later. And so Jesus says, you don't know what you're worshiping. We know, and salvation is from the Jews. So this is another way of saying the Torah and the rest of the Old Testament is all about me. And it's important that you know that that comes from the Jews because I am Jewish. It's about me. But what he doesn't tell her is you have to first become Jewish. You have to stop doing this first, go to the temple and worship No, he says, the hour is coming and is now here. You don't need anything else. All you need is what I give you. Jesus is the source that's going to quench the thirst. That then gets tied back into worship. Because when you trust that Jesus is the source that quenches your thirst, you will worship and this is, this is very evident here in the text because it's saying when Jesus pours out the drink that quenches thirst, it's the spirit that he's pouring out. And the spirit that he pours out is the Holy Spirit, God's very spirit, the spirit of God. And it's that spirit that creates in you right worship and true worship. So it says the, the right way to worship is not on a mountain. The right way to worship is worshiping the Father by the Son, the truth, through his Spirit. Worship in truth and spirit. I am the truth, and I pour out my Spirit. And that produces the worship that God desires. So Jesus pours out the spirit. It's the living water that's alluded to in the Old Testament. And that allows us to worship. The water gives life just like the spirit gives life. It's the very principle of life. And so here's, here's something that is very important for us to see. Jesus doesn't remove thirst He quenches thirst. 
That's very frustrating, isn't it? Do you guys resent that? I think you probably do. You wish that as soon as you receive Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit, it was just perfect. Don't ever get thirsty again. I don't need Jesus anymore. That's what we're saying. A thirst is a deep admission and confession of our need. And we don't want to need Jesus. We don't want to depend on him. We don't want to trust him. We, instead, we want Jesus to kind of like make us God. We want him to make us not needy. But that's not what Jesus does here. He gives us the source that will quench our thirst. And so we're like the Samaritans. I can think of so many different ways that we kind of go with God and receive, and then we're like, hmm, that was nice. I'm going to stay here. And now I'm going to continue to go back to this well that's provided for me in the past, where I've met Jesus before, and just continue to think that that is where I will continue to meet him. This happens as the lifespan grows and develops. You might think of like your youth group or your community in college, maybe where you came to faith, as like, oh, this is how Jesus quenches my thirst. So now I have to reproduce that to get more of that. And then when you move out of your college town, go and get a job, and are living in a city, that doesn't really happen. And so it can, can really jar your faith. And you can feel like God isn't with you. When he's just inviting you into a new understanding of him what he's going to do with you. What about once you've had kids? If you really enjoyed being fed by Jesus in your quiet time where you had like an hour and a half of quiet in the morning, you had your coffee and a journal and a Bible, and like, that's a good thing. Jesus really does feed you and nourish you in that. Okay. That happens for like maybe the first two minutes and then a two-year-old comes out holding their diaper and screaming and it's over. And so if that is how the only way that you think that you're going to quench your thirst, that's not actually spirit and truth. That is a religious practice. And God can and does use that, but he's not restricted to that. He gives you the spirit, and it wells up in you, and it feeds you in a new life stage. It feeds you in a new circumstance. But if you're still going back to that old well and God's not big enough to handle those different life events, those circumstances, then you'll miss it. So we're like the Samaritans in, in that. And then we kind of build that resentment like God isn't quenching my thirst anymore. So finally, we learn from this story that we're actually all made to thirst for God. And that is exactly how he created us. So that's not a deficiency of our humanity. That's the essence of our humanity is to need God, is to be thirsty for him. So we see this in an interesting way because Jesus tells this woman, I am the Messiah. I who speak to you am he. I am the Christ. I am the Savior. 
And she just has this beautiful reaction. And she just leaves. The woman left her water jar and went away into town and says to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to Jesus. So when we receive the drink that Jesus gives, we're brought into this personal, dynamic, deeply satisfying relationship with the Lord. And we see this happen instantly for this woman. Sometimes this happens very gradually for us. But for her, we get this beautiful picture of what it looks like instantly. And it looks like this. It's adoration. And it's adoration expressed in evangelism. So she goes to tell other people about Jesus. Why does she do that? It's not because she has like a need for a quota of different people that she shares her faith with. That's sometimes how we think of it. No, she's doing it because she now loves Jesus. This is someone who has just raised her up from the pits of her own thirst and destruction and has given her eternal life. And so she wants to tell other people about who Jesus is because she loves Jesus. So this relationship, this dynamic, personal relationship, it leads to this adoration. We want to show Jesus off because we love him. And so here's the question for you. Do you love Jesus like this? Do you know Jesus like this? How is he quenching your thirst in this season? Here's how he wants to do it, and it's the model of the Samaritan woman. He wants to do it personally, intimately, and worshipfully. So Jesus really did, God really did meet this woman, this meager forgotten, random woman. And he really had this personal encounter with her. And he wants to do that with you. He wants to do it intimately. He doesn't want you to come halfway with him or only show him the certain parts that you think are acceptable. He wants to know you completely and love you fully in that. And then finally, what he will do is he will give you his spirit and it will create in you a heart that worships. And it's that heart that will continually be satisfied. You won't have the thirst removed, but it will always be satisfied by the spirit. And it will be satisfied in a, in a variety of different ways. And so know Jesus like that. Look to him to quench your thirst in the season right now, and look for him to do that in those three ways. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture of what it looks like when you meet someone and just interrupt their lives, when you take them out of the patterns that they've established that are destroying them, and that you show them who you are. You show them how you satisfy their longings, how you satisfy their thirst, and how you quench it. 
And God, I just pray that we would know that. We would, even if we are in a season where we're profoundly feeling thirsty and we're wondering where you are, that your spirit would well up in us. And even if you're using this season to develop our thirst, to take it away from other things and to place it only on you, that your spirit helps us do that as well, Lord. So we ask for your help. We ask that we would know what it means to drink from this well, to know that it is your son who gives us this water, and it is the spirit that he pours out on us. We thank, we thank you for all of this, and we pray f- all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.